Joshua 6, our reading as well as the content of our sermon this morning will be Joshua 6, verses 6 through 27. We're continuing the narrative account of the judgment of Jericho. Beginning in verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I tell you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets, and the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus, the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. Then, on the seventh day, they rose early in the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And on the... And at the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her and in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and priests blew the trumpets, and when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there, as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho, with the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord again in prayer to prepare ourselves to hear from him. Lord, again we ask 
that you would impart to us grace this hour to have ears to hear the glorious truth of this text. Grant me the ability to proclaim it by way of the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would sanctify your people and that you would bring those, whether they're here or listening online, who are outside of the faith, not covered by the blood of Christ at this point, at least they don't realize it, that you would grant them saving faith today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. The fall of Jericho um, is certainly one of the best known um, Old Testament um, events, um, known by many from their Sunday school days in that song. Um, along with the accounts of um, Jonah and the great um, fish, uh, David and Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den, and so on, um, those are all great, incredible biblical accounts of redemptive history that unfortunately um, are the subject matter of bad teaching and bad preaching. It is all too common to hear the fall of Jericho used for moralistic messages um, with the tagline, go now, have faith like Joshua, faiths all the Jerichos in your life, and you just wait and you watch for the walls of all your trials to fall down flat. While the sovereign work of the Lord Jesus Christ is absent from the message. Currently, you might hear this account, this Joshua account, misused to, to preach messages on um, culture wars. Misapplying Jericho and its inhabitants to uh, opposing political parties and their partisan agendas. Turning it into a message of, of social and political conquest. It is not that. Nor is it here for the sake of, of moralistic pep talks. The fall of Jericho is to remind us of the testimony of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. That's what it's about. A major component of the drama of redemption. A promise given to Abraham half a millennium earlier that God would give his descendants, that God guaranteed to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan. It would come after 400 years of bondage in Egypt, as prophesied, followed by 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, 
Israel now finally has miraculously crossed the Jordan facing now the seemingly impregnable city of Jericho, which stands as the first obstacle to their occupation of the land of Canaan. And therefore is paramount to the taking of the whole land. Jericho must be destroyed in order to proceed in and take on all of God's promises. Now, if you'll notice back in verse 1, the city of Jericho, we read, was tightly shut up. They are on battle alert. No one is allowed in or out. And they realize, as Canaanites, that the land of Canaan, it's not really theirs. They're merely squatters in a land that is possessed by God. God is the possessor of the land because God alone owns the cattle on a thousand hills along with the hills upon which they graze. No problem with that, amen? That's his land. Or, in the words of Abraham Kuyper, quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare mine. End quote. Mine, says the Lord. Now, as we have already noted, the Lord withheld the promised land from Israel for four and a half centuries. Why? Because the iniquities of the Amorites, the iniquities of the Canaanites was not yet what? What? Full, not yet complete. Genesis 15, 16. They were a wicked people, and God, who's merciful, allowed their wickedness to come to a boiling point over the course of 400 years. God's patience, again, God's patience and long-suffering was exercised for these people for 400 years. Years And there comes a point when God's patience is exhausted and his justice falls. That's what we see here. The inhabitants of this city have no idea what is in store for them because God's wrath abides on them. Such is the case, friends, such is the case with every single person throughout this world at this very moment whose faith and trust is not in Jesus Christ alone. Look at the words of John chapter 3 and verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God, what? abides on him. And who's the judge? Jesus. I know I've said this before, but I get tired of hearing people say, Jesus doesn't judge. Correction, Jesus is the judge. 
Look at it, John 5, verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone. These are the words of Christ. But he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. Now, this fulfilled promise of Joshua, right here, Joshua chapter 6, foreshadows another promise of God that has not yet been fulfilled. And that is the day that the greater Joshua, remember Joshua means the Lord is salvation. Jesus is the same name as Joshua, it's just in the Greek, Jesus, the Lord who is salvation. He's the greater Joshua. This Joshua foreshadows the greater Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will return in glory and judge the living and the dead. This story foreshadows that. Now, what happens to Jericho when the trumpet sounds? And the people shout on the seventh day, on the seventh time, seventh time on the seventh day, is a graphic picture of what will happen on the last day of history when the angel sounds the seventh trumpet and there's a loud shout in heaven, we're told in Revelation 11, and Christ comes to judge the living and the dead, as we looked at in Revelation 19, last Lord's Day. Now, because this is a violent passage, there are plenty of people outside of the church, enemies of Christianity, who will say, there he is, there it is, God is cruel, he is brutal to demand this kind of annihilation of a people. Your God is brutal, Christian, they'll say. They'll say this is a terrible history that tells of a terrible God, and they accuse God of being unfair. Newsflash, if God were fair, everyone without exception would be in hell because he's just and he's holy. They might say, that he has no right to be so cruel to innocent men, women, and children. Newsflash number two. There is no one who's innocent under a holy, righteous, just God. Others who reject the one true living God will just dismiss this story as mythological. Friends, this is why we must remind those who mock God and his Christ that the fall of Jericho right here in Joshua 6 is a graphic warning to them of what will happen at the end of the age to them. Mock God all you want, but remember Jericho is in miniature that which will happen to all the nations of the earth on the last day period. So 
Don't ever be surprised, beloved, when, when unbelievers critique the Bible. They critique the Bible's history. They critique God's will, and they critique God's ways. Point of application from the outset. Friends, when we deal with texts like this, never, ever apologize for the word of God. Amen? Never apologize for God's word because it alone is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is perfect and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof and correction. And it is what builds up and sanctifies God's people, the word of God. Now, one crisis, just one, there's many, unfortunately. Um, One crisis in the evangelical church today um, is over the nature of God. It is an uh, oversimplification of reducing almighty, glorious, holy God to just one attribute, and that, of course, is the attribute of love. God is love, amen? But he's not only love. That's not all that he is. That is a dangerous reductionism. But that has become the nature of God to many. Not only for those outside the church, but many within the church today. Because that is what culture clamors for. So much of the church is bowing to culture and gives them what they clamor for. A reduced, simplified God, and many pastors, therefore, today are dedicated to preaching not the truth of God, not the whole counsel of God, but only the love of God. And therefore, those types cannot and will not deal with this text. They will try to avoid it, or they'll just straight up dismiss it. Joshua 6, what, we re- what you just heard read, the violence, this is not a characteristic merely of the God of the Old Testament. For God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He who waits long, God who waits long and holds back his judgment He holds it back. He's held it back from these Amorites, from these Canaanites for 400 years, just as he held back the waters of the Jordan, right? But there comes a time when the waters must fall. There comes a time when the hammer of God's justice must fall. And one day, Every one of us will stand before him, and if we have not repented of our sins, have not repented of our unbelief, entrusting ourselves to the mercies of Christ and his shed blood alone, we too will receive the justice of God. That is a gracious warning of Scripture. That's love. That warning is love. That warning is grace filled. Today, we stand on mercy's ground. Right here, sitting under the word of God, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is offered to all who have ears to hear, the living Lord who is the living Savior. Because not a one of us 
knows if we'll have tomorrow to take him or not. Take him now. Receive him now. Today's the day of salvation. So this great story is not telling us about a cruel, brutal, vicious God. This account is telling us about a holy, righteous, gracious, patient, merciful God who's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's what this account is about. Amen? Who, this great, glorious, almighty, sovereign, omnipotent, powerful God, um, mysteriously appeared before Joshua as a battle-ready warrior. We were introduced to him last Lord's Day, chapter 5 and verse 13. Remember, this, this narrative begins with that encounter. The commander of the Lord's army, who is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ, a Christophany. A Christophany, an Old Testament manifestation of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, and victory depends on him. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Remember Joshua said, are you with us or are you against us? He said, no. <laughs> I'm the commander of the Lord's army. He bowed down. What did the commander of the Lord's army do? Receive Joshua's worship. Angels don't do that. Godly men don't do that. The next thing he did is he said, take off your sandals, Joshua. You're standing on holy ground. Angels don't make ground holy. Men don't make ground holy. Only God makes ground holy. Pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The commander of the Lord's army. Now, there are four great moments that, that move this narrative along. The first is God's promise. God's promise. And notice, it's the commander of the Lord's army who, who speaks about this victory in the past tense, as though it's already happened. Look back at verse 2. The Lord, notice all caps, L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the commander of the Lord's army, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and valiant warriors. Just like Rahab's words in chapter 2, remember? We know that the Lord has given you this land, she said to the two spies. We know. What does that tell us? Friends. God's promise is your confidence. Many people approached me last week. They said basically the same thing. They were blessed to hear about the Lord as a warrior because it provides and it builds up in them such confident hope. The Lord is the warrior. He will conquer, for he has conquered. God's promise is your confidence. Friends, that's your great motivation for continuing on in the faith, as difficult as things may be, as challenging as it is to live for Christ 
in a fallen world. His promise is your confidence. He will hold you to the, to the end. Pray to persevere because he's the one who preserves. He will preserve you to the end. Give me strength to persevere, Lord. His promise, your confidence. So the, the fact that the Lord is a warrior and the Lord is his name gives us such confident hope. The fact that life is yours in Christ already. He promises that. Salvation is yours already. Forgiveness is yours already. Perseverance is yours. Security of soul is yours. Grace for today, yours. Because God promises that bolsters confidence. Joshua was very confident based on the promise of God. Trust that all he has promised, he will fulfill. It may not look like it right now, but he will. It may not feel like it right now, but he will. Amen, better warriors? Amen. Amen. So that is the most important element of this entire account, and that is God's promise. So we move from God's promise to now this move of obedience, the move of obedience. That is obedience to his word, obedience to his way, and that is to carry out his command. Now, he gives Joshua his marching orders, verses 2 through 5. Joshua turns and gave those same instructions to the priests, to his commanders, and all of the army of Israel, and they follow it to the letter, and we see that in verses 6 through 11. I'm not going to read every verse again. It's a long text, but verses 6 through 11, that's what we see. Now, this whole narrative is driven by command and obedience. Obedience to God's command. Just like the crossing of the Jordan, this is how you shall do it. This is my prescribed manner of getting you to the other side. So too, in order to take Jericho, follow my commands. Be obedient, Joshua. Obedience, Israel. March, okay, march. Once around the city for six days, and then seven times, on the seventh day. Now, this repeated reference to the number seven in the Bible reminds us of the perfection of God's plan. It's a number of perfection or completeness. God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Seven. So as commanded, the people of Israel, they've already marched into Canaan behind the Ark of the Covenant in obedience as commanded by God. They consecrated themselves to Yahweh as commanded by God. Remember, they were told to bathe and change their clothes. Consecrate yourselves. They crossed through the river on dry ground just as God instructed them. They built a memorial of stones as commanded by God. They didn't initiate it. God commanded them. They carried it out in obedience. That entire generation of men were not circumcised, which was a sign of the covenant. 
They obeyed circumcision of the flesh, that is covenant renewal, obedience, and they celebrated Passover for the first time in 40 years in the promised land. Obedience. God's command, Israel's obedience. Now, make one circuit of the city every day for six days, and on the seventh, circle the city six times, okay, and do this all very quietly, circle it six times, and then on the seventh time, then blow the trumpets and then shout. That is how you will conquer Jericho. Seems like such a bizarre strategy, doesn't it? But Israel had to learn what we must learn. Remember this? 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, look at it. The weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of what? Fortresses, walls. What do people run behind? Walls. People hide behind law, walls of false doctrine, walls of lies, walls of paganism. They're not safe. The word of God is like a battering ram that breaks down those fortresses. Divinely powerful for destruction of fortresses. Friends, the only weapon that the church has is obedience to the revealed word of God. That's the weapon we hold. Obedience to the sword of the spirit, God's word. Any strategy short of that or any attempt to go beyond that will prove to be impotent and will fail. Obedience to the word of God. That now moves the narrative, obedience. So here's Israel. They're following a box the Ark of the Covenant. All these people are following a box carried by the Levitical priests. They're walking around the city. Day one of the campaign was over. There's still six more days to go. And in verses 12 through 14, they describe for us the action which took place on the second day. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually, blew the trumpets, and armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus, the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. Now, Israel understands, they know that the hearts of the, of, of the Canaanites melted, right? When they heard of the news of them crossing the Red Sea 40 years before, and the kings that they already defeated on the other side of the Jordan, we read that their hearts melted. There was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Nevertheless, though they're all walled up, there's fear in their hearts, we can be sure, as is always the case, as they marched around the city of Jericho, there are those who would have mocked this exercise. Just as people today, as fearful as they may be of the looming judgment of God, 
They're not in Christ. They mock Christ and they mock his church. What does God do in the heavens, Psalm 2? He sits there and he laughs. He doesn't even get up. He sits and he laughs at his enemies. Now imagine this. You march around the city day after day. You have God's word in your ear. God's word tells you, and you know it to be true, I have given you Jericho. Christian, I have already given you eternal life. Christian, I've already forgiven you of all your sins at Calvary's cross. It's a done deal. You know it. You hear it. You, 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 you return to camp. You marched around the city, and you're looking, and there's no change. Nothing's happening. You get up, you do it again. Day three, day four, day five, you go back to camp. Will Jericho really fall? Am I truly saved? Am I truly sanctified and being sanctified? Is glory really mine to have? You've been there, amen? We've all been there. You, you, you attend church faithfully. You sit under the word of God faithfully. You're praying for family. You're praying for loved ones. You're praying for your, your neighbors, unbelievers. You're circling them with prayer and nothing's happening. Days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months. Months turn into years back and forth, round and round, just like Israel in their seams. It seems as though nothing's happening. Commentator uh, Alan Redpath comments here in his book, Victorious Christian Living, he said this, quote, there was no earthly explanation why this should be the means for taking Jericho. No, except 13 big, long looks at the enemy. God made them walk round that great fortification until within themselves they died to every hope of conquest unless God should intervene. End of quote. In other words, it wasn't their marching around Jericho that was going to capture the city. No, never. But it was God's way of bringing them to the end of themselves. Their parents in the wilderness never came to the end of themselves. They all died in the wilderness. We all must die. You must die to self-importance. As God's people, we must die to self-confidence, self-strength, self-dependence, because if God doesn't do this, Nothing will happen. What do we open the service with? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, what? You labor in vain. So do it according to his will and his word. Or you labor in vain. There's nothing to be novel about the church. There's no novelty 
to be carried out in the church of Jesus Christ. So here they are walking in silence. They march and they're to remain quiet. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Now, that, that is oftentimes misapplied. Psalm 46.10, it's often applied uh, to the practice of, of maintaining a, a serene, calm attitude and a posture of patience in the midst of trial, trouble, and adversity. Just remain calm, quiet, reflect upon the sweetness of the Lord. Is that a good thing to do? Yes, but that's not what that text means. The force of those words is not a call, a call to calmness. It's a calm to quietness. Silence. It would actually be better translated, shut up. Seriously. Shut up. Hold your mouth in the presence of the power of God. Because the walls are ready to fall. Remain quiet until I tell you to shout. Which moves us to the climax of the narrative. The events of the seventh day. Verses 15 and 16, and that is judgment. Verse 15, then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner. Okay, notice, in the same manner. We do church service every week in the same manner. Amen? We read the scripture, we pray the scripture, we preach the scripture, and we sing the scripture the same manner. Why? That's what he prescribes. In the same manner seven times, only on that day they marched around the city seven times. Verse 16, at the seventh time when the priest blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Verse 20, so the people shouted. <laughs> and priests blew the trumpets, and when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the walls fell down flat. Notice, the walls do not fall out. They do not fall in. They fall flat. Kind of like that horrific image of 9-11 when the Twin Towers fell flat like this. You remember that? flat. Tens of thousands of people were in that city, Jericho. Meanwhile, in verse 17, Joshua gave the Israelites very specific instructions. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that it belong, it and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Notice certain items are devoted to destruction Maybe this will sound like uh, Romans 9 reading this morning. Some were devoted to destruction, and certain things were devoted to the Lord. Now, the things banned would include personal property, um, livestock, which were the typical spoils of war. They're not to enslave any of the people of Jericho, but only the precious metals are to be spared for the treasury of the Lord, for the tabernacle. 
So there must be no possibility whatsoever that the people of Israel be led astray by the survivors of these cities, these pagans, not to their religious relics or their practices. So God says, destroy it all. Take nothing for yourselves. Simple? We'll see next week that it wasn't so simple. But it's very simple. It's very clear. Now, notice who's on the outside of the walls. It's not the enemies of God. Do you see Christians? Do you see believers hiding inside of walls in fear? No. Who are behind these fortresses? Unbelievers. Who, who's doing the marching? Believers. God's covenant people. Inside are the enemies of God. And, and the walls that they constructed seemed impregnable. Nobody's going to get us in here. They were thinking. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the walls of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, gates don't move. They're stationary. Who's on the march? Christ in his church, they're on the march. We're on the march and the gates, the fortresses of hell will not prevail to hold back the spreading of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we see here. Encouraging? I hope so. Basic application. That which many trusted in here, high walls, thick walls, double wall, Jericho, double wall, turned out to be their destruction. We could wax eloquent and long on the kind of walls that people trust in today that in the end will serve as their own destruction. Self-righteousness, a wall that will destroy you. False religion, wall, destroy you. Self-confidence, self-righteousness, I'm a good person, it'll destroy you. That's a wall that will kill you. Earthly power, fame, fortune, those walls will fall upon you to your own destruction. But here now, the iniquity of the Amorites, it rises up. It's full, it's boiling over, and God's judgment comes, and the judge of all the earth does what is right. I want you to consider Canaanite culture for a moment. It was debased. They were sexually immoral to, to a point that was just atrocious. They, they practiced child sacrifice, put these babies in the arms of this bronze statue of Molech, start them on fire, and burn the babies alive. Incest, bestiality, cultic prostitution, it was all commonplace in Canaan. How do you know that? Because the Bible tells me so. Leviticus 18. Instructions to Israel long before they enter Canaan. Verse 21. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech. Do not sacrifice your children to Molech. 
nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female, homosexuality. It's an abomination, says the Lord. Anyone have a problem with that? Woke culture, not in here. This is the church of Jesus Christ. It's his word we live by. Don't bite, don't bow. Don't assault. Just proclaim the truth in love. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion, you think. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these, all these, the nations which I'm casting out before you have become defiled. This is what they do. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. Just as I vomited them out, you practice it, I'll vomit you out, Israel. Now, as wicked as they were, that is not to say that they were not intelligent, able people because the Canaanites were. They were great builders, obviously. Great inventors. They were um, artisans. They were resourceful merchants. And they're responsible for the very first alphabet from which all other alphabets were developed. The Canaanites developed the first alphabet. They're not stupid. So they, they were very able people who lived deeply wicked lives. And no doubt that they thought such a way of life was just commonplace, it's normal, it's acceptable. You better accept it as well, or you're a hater. Sound familiar? Basic application. Our nation, America, is sprinting headlong towards the same judgments that we see at Jericho overrun with the same sins of Jericho, and God condemned them. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men, Romans 1.18, who suppress, they tried to hold down the truth of God in their unrighteousness. Sexual perversion. LGBTQXYZ, child sacrifice, abortion, millions and millions of babies slaughtered in this country. God will not be mocked. Let God be true and every man a liar. His wrath is boiling over in America just as it did in Jericho for 400 years, God showed mercy. 
Now, boom, judgment. Verse 21. They utterly destroyed everything in it. Everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword, as God told them to do. Yes, this is stern. Yes, this is harsh punishment. Yes, this is a very sober picture. No one is spared. Not a two-year-old, not a 90-year-old, not a teenager, not a newlywed. They all died by the sword, as God said. But the people of Jericho, now don't forget this, the people of Jericho knew full well the power of Yahweh. They feared the power of God. They could have swung their gates wide open to Yahweh. That's what Nineveh did. Under the preaching of Jonah, what did God do? Spared them. He spared them, not Jericho. They loved their false gods. They loved their paganism more than they feared Yahweh. Many people fear the one true God, but they love their paganism more. They love their idols more. So they remain behind their fortress that they've built up for themselves. I'm too intelligent to buy into that. You're a fool. If God chose to judge, punish, and execute the Canaanites, by what principle, by what principle could anyone charge him a fault? Anyone want to give it a shot? It's that Romans 9 principle we read from earlier. Look at it, Romans 9. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Who are you, O oh man? Who do you dare think you are to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Who will or who can deny God absolute authority over the life of every human being? He's the sovereign. He's the creator. He spoke everything into existence. You and I, we're creatures. You're going to question him? Not like that. Notice next, Jericho set ablaze, verse 24. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Boy, this sobers you up, doesn't it? Feeling sober, spiritually sober this morning? Anybody yawning out there? Don't yawn, wake up. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Notice, they burned all of the city's idols. Now, this is a message to the surrounding cities. This is the first stop in Canaan, Jericho. First stop. God is a consuming fire. Now, this, is, this isn't something they just decided to do that day. Again, God instructed them long before they went into the land. Look at it, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25. The graven images of their gods, you are to burn with fire. 
You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, right, made of wood covered with gold, nor take it for yourselves, or you will be snared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Burn it up. Now, don't forget this. This was a mass, massive slaughter. So the fire, the side benefit of the fire, would have served to minimize disease with these heaps of dead corpses. God is thorough, isn't he? Burn it up. And then notice Jericho now, in the land upon which it was erected, is now cursed. Cursed, verse 26. But as for you, then Joshua made them take an oath at that time saying, cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho, with the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. Cursed. The word cursed is a word that means to be devoted to God by way of destruction. That's what this city was, devoted to God for destruction. This city was given over for the purpose of being destroyed. That's what the word means, cursed. So then, Israel, keep yourselves clear from the thing that is accursed. <laughs> Amen, Christian brother and sister? Keep yourself away from the things that are cursed of God. Don't dabble. It leads to trouble, pain, sorrow. There's a curse that we read about in 1 Corinthians. It wasn't long ago we were there. Chapter 16, we read these words. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be anathema. Cursed. You'll be in the same place as Jericho was, cursed. Who loves not the Lord Jesus, who loves not his gospel, who's a recipient, who's not a recipient of sovereign grace. Okay, now, the fall of Jericho is a picture of God's coming judgment upon the whole earth, as I said earlier. Everything that is on this earth will be burned up so that there is no longer any hint of human sin. The final judgment is depicted by John, Revelation chapter 11. We read these words, chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. What's going to happen is that there's going to be an uncreation of the old to make way for the new creation, new heaven, new earth. And notice in that text, the sounding of the seventh trumpet by the angel and then a loud shout, voices in heaven, J Revelation 11, clearly echo this Jericho account. Amen? It's all right here. When he comes to restore all things, he will utterly destroy everything that stands in his way. 
just like God destroyed everything that stood in the way of Old Covenant Israel. They marched around Jericho seven times, and again, the number seven is associated with perfection. It's associated with creation. They march around seven times to produce a kind of uncreation with regard to Jericho, and it falls flat. Seventh trumpet, last day, everything falls. Everything is burned up with fire. Made new. That leads to the question of all questions. What hope is there for sinners before this holy, almighty God who is a consuming fire? What hope? The only hope for sinners is the gospel of Jesus Christ, a savior who himself was what? Cursed. Sent to be cursed. Devoted to the Lord God the Father for destruction, to be destroyed so that we might receive his blessings, that his blessings would come to you through the curse of the Son, the cursing of the Son. Blessings to you, blessings to me, gospel grace. That's what will save a sinner from this type of looming judgment. The only thing. So Jericho stands as a warning. Again, we see the, the grace and love of God through Scripture. This is a warning. Unless sinners repent, they too will perish under God's wrath. So this is not a story about a terrible God, a brutal God. This is the story of a gracious, merciful God because in that city, under the curse of that city, salvation was found, salvation was claimed, and salvation was gained by a prostitute. Rahab. Is it possible that I've sinned so greatly as not to be accepted by Christ by way of his gospel? Die rejecting him and that's it. There's no sin that the blood of Christ can't cover. Rahab prostitute the fourth great move of this narrative almost done save the best for last is the salvation of Rahab and her family their deliverance okay again their deliverance was just as important as Jericho's destruction remember the two spies sent into the city Joshua sent in two spies Turn back to Joshua 2, verse 18. Verse 17. The men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to which you have made us swear. Remember, there was a promise that when the city would be destroyed, that they would spare her and her family. Unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread, scarlet rope in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about in that hour who goes out of the doors of, of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. 
scarlet cord outside the window was a picture pointing back to Israel's great exodus when God instructed them to slaughter a lamb and paint its blood on their houses. The doorpost and the lentil of their houses, this is their gospel reasoning by which she would be saved, a scarlet cord that points forward to the salvation that will spare you of the coming judgment, all who are covered by the scarlet blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and only the blood of Jesus Christ. The only way to flee from the wrath to come is to flee to the cross, that is to Christ's outstretched arms. And I stand here this morning as a herald announcing the good news that is in Christ and Christ alone for sinners because he bore the curse and he was raised the third day. And he's the only way. I am the way, he said. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Having lived the sinless life, he will credit his sinlessness to your account, his righteousness to your account by entrusting yourself to him by faith. The only way to escape the wrath that is to come. Because on the cross, he took all of your wickedness upon himself. He bore God's wrath So that you don't have to, by trusting in him. So I offer free gospel grace to all men, to all women right now. Flee from the wrath to come if you're not in Christ. Stop messing around. Repent and believe and you shall be saved. And you will become, don't miss this, this is a treasure. You will become Holy to the Lord, set apart, verse 19, you then shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Treasury, you're his treasure. Redeemed souls, God's treasure. Because verse 17, all that is in the city belongs to the Lord, only Rahab the harlot. And all who are with her in the house shall live, plucked out like a brand from the fire. We've been plucked out like a brand in the fire in Christ who bore the curse. So we're given here a glimpse of how it will be at the end of time. Second Peter 3 reads as follows. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare and everything will be destroyed. Jericho is a picture of that, which is to come. So just as all of Canaan was now open to Israel after their complete and utter destruction, so too, when Christ comes again and judges the nation in his wrath, a new heaven and a new earth will rise in the place of this one and will allow us to receive all of God's promises to the full in a glorified body, not unlike his, to rule and reign with him for all of eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. For he is faithful to every one of his promises. Amen? The lesson of Jericho is, your walls 
whatever they may be, will not spare you on that day. So do what Rahab did. Prepare to meet your God. And you want to meet him in Christ alone. And his wrath will pass over you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We do praise you for your abounding grace, your loving mercy and kindness. We thank you for this glorious narrative and what it teaches us about you, about your justice, about your grace, about your mercy, and the fact that you always keep your promises. May that encourage your people today to run with steadfast fervor, keeping their eyes affixed upon the author and finisher of our finisher of our faith, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Together we say, amen.